I've printed our scripture text in the bulletin this morning. So our scripture comes from Matthew 27, verses 32 through 54. However, before uh, I lead us in, before I read the passage of scripture, I just wanted to uh, make you aware of a couple of prayer concerns in our uh, congregation. Uh, Jack Reddick's uh, Parkinson's is um, getting more severe, and Nan is uh, dutifully um, caring for him, and I know that that is um, quite a chore, ladies. If you could please give Nan a call and a little note of encouragement, I know that she would appreciate that, and I know that uh, many of you already are doing that. And um, David Devine's uh, dad had surgery on Friday, I believe, and uh, had a good portion of his intestines removed um, as complications from the, uh, the stroke he had. Um, pray, for, pray for David's dad, of course his mom, they live down uh, toward Bradenton Beach. David's making a lot of trips down there. Uh, I know David is overseeing a big transition um, in his offices. Uh, and then also his brother uh, just had another brain surgery. So uh, really left David uh, as well as his father and, and mother um, and brother and his brother's family up in prayer. I'm going to lead us in prayer before we read the Scriptures. Almighty God, we come to you on this uh, Easter Sunday remembering especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we remember that He rose from the dead, it brings all of our life into a greater focus. It reminds us that death is not the end of life. It reminds us that there are things of consequence beyond this life. That there are values um, that supersede this life. That our life is in Your hands. And when we remember that Christ went to the cross and He was willing to die and then to rise from the dead all because He loved us, we who are sinners, it reminds us of Your great love. It reminds us of the grace we have received in Jesus Christ. And it reminds us of what is really important. Father, I pray that You would help us to live for the Lord Jesus, to trust Him in all things. Lord, in that regard, we think of those in our body who are hurting. We think of... Jack and Nan, as Jack's Parkinson's has uh, progressed further and Nan is having to 
to uh, to care for him 24 hours a day and uh, wearing on her strength. God, I ask that you would be with them. I ask that you would provide richly everything that they need for life and for godliness. Give Jack renewed strength. God, give man an abundance of strength to care for him and um, give of herself continually uh, in fulfillment of her marriage vows and also simply because she loves him so much. Father, we pray for our brother David and for his father and brother and um, all their loved ones. We ask God that you would uh, help David's father to recover from this latest surgery. Um, he's uh, getting toward the end of this window of, the, of real danger. We pray that you would bring him through and help him to regain his strength and get back on track toward uh, regaining his health. Lord, for David's brother, um, he's had so many brain surgeries, we, we've lost count. Be with him and his family. Encourage them and bring healing. Um, to his body. And Lord, for our brother David, sustaining, cause him to rise up on eagle's wings uh, each day and uh, renew his strength as he keeps his eyes fixed on Jesus. Father, help us now as we read and, and hear your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Give your attention to God's word. Matthew 27, beginning with verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a school, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he, he being Jesus, tasted it, he would not drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them, casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put a charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others? He cannot save himself? He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over, over all the land until the ninth hour. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma, sapatanani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the temple... Uh, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus Christ is no stranger to people questioning and doubting His identity. From the time He began His ministry on earth, And on to today, people have doubted Him, insulted Him, and hated Him. And so it is not surprising that we live in a culture that is becoming more and more intolerant of His Gospel, intolerant of His followers, His teachings, and His Lordship. At this point, let me say parenthetically, This sermon is not going to veer off into a woe-is-me sermon about uh, the mistreatment of Christianity or the mistreatment of Christians. How Christianity is viewed by society or how Christians are treated within society is only of incidental concern to Christians. Throughout Throughout the centuries, Christians have lived in societies that are unfriendly to Christians. Uh, They have lived in societies that reject the claims of Christianity. In fact, most other nations, most other cultures are far more intolerant and hostile to Christianity than our own present society. Truth be told, our biggest problem is that we, as Christians living in present-day America, we have it um, so easy um, in in our culture that uh, the biggest thing that that threatens our our faith most is just the easiness um, of our faith. There's no significant pushback or threats to our faith. There's no significant threats to our lives or our ability to worship God. And so sometimes it seems to me that we exaggerate the ways that society pushes against us all as an excuse um, for our being weak in our faith. But my original point still stands. People have always doubted and insulted and hated Jesus Christ. 
So even when Jesus was helplessly suspended on the cross, struggling for every breath He took, um, people were insulting Him and questioning His identity. Look at verses 38 through 44. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the left, I'm sorry, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And the chief priest and the scribes, the elders, they all mocking, they joined in. It is quite remarkable to see these passers-by wagging their heads in an overstated uh, fashion in order to mock Him and to hear them say with false concern in their voices, Oh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself through the Son of God come down from the cross. It's remarkable to hear them say this because these were the same people who welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem only a week earlier. Jesus came um, just those few days earlier riding on a donkey. All Jerusalem came out. They were laying palm branches um, to make a path for Him. And they were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And now at the end of the same week, they are mocking Jesus as He draws His last breaths while suffering unspeakable pain. And it's not surprising then in verses 41 through 43 that the chief priests and the scribes, the elders, took particular delight in His suffering. Jesus was a threat to them and to their corrupt uh, way of manipulating the people. But then you come to verse 44. And there's this thief on his right, this thief on his left. And in their pain, in their suffering, and they are struggling to breathe as well. I'm sure you've heard about how you stayed alive on the cross. As you had to lift yourself up in order to get air in your, your lungs. And these robbers, these thieves, who are hanging there struggling for breath, are using their breath to revile Jesus. So verse 44, the robbers who were crucified with Him also reviled Him in the same way. And this begs the question, why are people so quick to doubt and to insult and revile Jesus Christ. And I think there are at least three reasons, and I will cover them quickly. I think one reason is political, the next reason is sociological, and the third reason is theological. Politically, as I've already said, Jesus was a threat to the chief priest and the Pharisees. Uh, they were religious leaders, but they used their... Uh, religious standing to rule and to govern. They were able to manipulate the people and enrich themselves uh, through their governance of the religious system. 
And so Jesus came along. And He called them out. One of His very first sermons, Sermon on the Mount, He said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't go to heaven. And it was a very vivid way of saying that the scribes and the Pharisees, they themselves were not going to heaven. They themselves were not righteous enough to get into heaven. And so he's saying, they're going to hell. So don't be like them. And then he came along, also very early in his ministry, came into the temple, saw the people uh, buying and exchanging uh, money and uh, buying the, the sacrifices there in the temple, uh, as was unlawful to do. And he came and overturned their temple, I mean, overturned their tables, threw the money all over the place. He had made a cord, a, a whip of cords, and began beating the people to get them out of there, saying that his father's house was a house of prayer. And then, near the end of his ministry, in Matthew 23, he. He had a whole series of unflattering things to say about the Pharisees and he said it right to their faces. And I won't read the whole passage, but I at least want to read two verses. Here's what Jesus said. This is amongst some of the other things that he said to them. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You can see why these uh, chief priests and, and Pharisees and elders of the people were taking such delight in His crucifixion. But not only them... Everywhere that Jesus Christ has been, has been preached, everywhere that Christianity has taken hold, Christ becomes a threat to the governing authorities. Jesus claims to be the King of kings. He claims to be the Lord of lords. He says that every knee will bow, that every tongue will, will confess that He is the Lord to the glory of the Father. And so, what do Christ's followers do? Well, they follow Him. They give their primary allegiance to Him rather than to the state or to the king or the dictator. And so from His founding, Christians have been persecuted for political reasons. The persecution by Rome that broke out uh, very soon after Christ's death. It has been very well documented, not only in the Bible, but by many secular sources from that time. And the persecution has continued by different nations ever since. There was just an article in the Wall Street Journal in the last couple of weeks about uh, the decline. It's not the decline of Christianity per se. It is the decline of 
of Christians living in ten nations in particular. Uh, nine of them Muslim. The tenth nation is, um, is North Korea. And it talks about uh, the, the intense persecution. It's not that Christians are falling back from the faith. Simply they're being killed and exiled at such great rates that uh, the numbers of Christians are declining. I saw something else and I did not take note of it. I wish I would have. It was in the last couple of days. And it was a headline that, that China is becoming... Uh, the most one of the, the, the a center place where most Christians are living today in the world, um, and there's a, a, a tremendous um, uh, backlash against the government because the government was going to come in and, and knock down one of these churches, and thousands of Christians came and surrounded it. You can find it on the internet real easy. I wish I could remember the name of the city, but the pictures are gripping. All these Christians out there circling the church, saying no to the to the Chinese government. Persecution um, of Christians has gone on simply because Jesus Christ uh, claims to be the true. King of kings and Lord of lords. And so uh, he is rejected for that reason. Then there's the sociological reason that people reject Christ. Uh, None of us have ever been around a perfect person. A person who practices pure, unmixed, um, unmitigated love. And this love is combined with perfect righteousness and holiness. That is Jesus Christ. And people despise Him as He lived among them. Because by His very life, in the way He loved them, and in the way He loved God, it made them feel guilty. And so He was like a mirror before their soul. And they knew that they did not measure up. And so Isaiah 53, the prophecy of Jesus, says He was despised and rejected by men. And today people reject Jesus because they don't like the way He makes them feel. People want to choose their own paths without regard to what pleases God. They want to feel as if they are in charge. They want to do what pleases them. But then Jesus says... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Or again, the Apostle Paul says, But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For of this you may be sure, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous 
that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And so you can see that Christ's views of morality and what is important in life flies in the face of what our society typically pursues. But then the deepest reason for why people reject Jesus Christ is the theological reason. People are sinners. There is a principle of evil that resides in each one of us. We are sinners. There is an inborn inclination within us to reject God. Romans 3, verses 10 and 11, says it very clearly. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. The Bible says that we are born as enemies of God. That we are followers of Satan. And by nature, according to Ephesians 2, we are objects of God's wrath. By nature. I wish I could dress it up and make it look a little prettier. But there it is. The evil inside us is the deepest reason why people have always rejected Jesus Christ. Now let me pause right here uh, so I don't, you don't completely tune me out and I lose you. Because here's the good news. Jesus Christ came to earth to ransom uh, to give His life as a ransom for evil people. Christ did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. He came to earth to give His life for people who reject Him. What does the Scripture say in Romans 5? I'm sure you know it. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son... Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. And the Scripture assumes that by nature, as it says here in Romans 5, we were enemies. It assumes that Christ came to reconcile us to God by His death on the cross, by His resurrection from the dead. Even though people and societies have generally rejected Christ, it is never for good reasons. In fact, Christ has always been misunderstood. You can see it in our text in verses 45 through 50, and I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. And we've already read it. Uh, but you have it in front of you. Uh, what happened was it turned dark across the land for three hours while Jesus was on the cross. It says from the sixth hour till the ninth hour, that's basically from noon to three o'clock. 
And uh, when this happened, it got people's attention. They stopped reviling. Uh, the crowd stopped mocking. And they started to try and figure out who this person was who was hanging on the cross. And so Jesus, um, as it was coming toward that ninth hour, about 3 p.m., He cried out, and I, I botched it tremendously when I read it earlier. And we'll see how I do it this time. Eli, Eli, Lemma, Sabbat, Tanani, or somewhat there. <laughs> and it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they misunderstood when he said, Eli, Eli. They thought he was calling on Elijah to come and save him. But they did not realize at that very moment that Christ was in the process of giving himself to save them. Giving Himself to save others. While they're saying, will He save Himself? Irony of ironies. When Christ cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? The reason He cried this out was because at that moment He had taken upon Himself the cumulative sins of all His people. At that very moment, he took on all the millions of sins of the millions of people that belong to Him across the ages. And when He took on sin, He became sin for us. And God the Father turned away from Him and poured out all His wrath on Him and against Him for our sakes. And then when God's wrath was exhausted, Christ died. Verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. And at that very moment, when He died, things began to happen. In verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was a giant curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, it represented God's perfect and complete righteousness and holiness. And that curtain was torn in two. First of all, from top to bottom. Symbolizing or showing that no man could do it. It wasn't torn from the bottom up as if we could contribute anything to our salvation. No, God did it. He tore it from top to bottom. And He did it to show that the barrier between God and man had been removed. That, that we now have access into God's very presence because we now have been made holy. Because Jesus took our sins. He paid the penalty for them. And then He clothes us with His righteousness. What part do you have to play in that? Nothing. He did it all. All you can do is trust in Him. And He gives you the benefits of that salvation that He purchased 2,000 years ago.
And then there was an earthquake. And then, verse 52, the tombs were also opened when this earthquake happened. And the tombs stayed open until Jesus rose from the, from the dead. And so you look at verse 52 and 53. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection. So they stayed in the tombs until He came out. Until He Himself was resurrected. Why did this happen? To show the people in Jerusalem. To show us many centuries later. That in Jesus' death, and in His resurrection, He destroyed death. He conquered it. And so these dead people come out of their tombs and start walking around the city showing that Christ, by His resurrection, purchased life, even life after death. You trust in Jesus Christ. And when you close your eyes in death, you open them immediately in God's presence. And then, verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God who came to earth not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Don't reject Him. Don't misunderstand Him. Don't underestimate Him. Receive Him. Trust in Him. He is the only way. In fact, He, he is the only way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I pray that all who would trust in Jesus Christ that, um, and You would renew our faith so that we would live in the light of His resurrection, realizing that um, that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and He loves us so much that He died and rose on our behalf. We pray in His name. Amen.